Keeley Companies was started almost 50 years ago by the one and only Larry Keeley. What started as a small family-owned paving company in St. Louis has grown to a nationally known full-service construction, development, and restoration partner. Larry the Legend, as he is affectionately known, has been a part of this growth every step of the way and continues to provide guidance as his son, Rusty, my buddy, drives their vision and achieves results on purpose. His unwavering foundation of a family culture with a focus on people has gotten Keeley Companies to where they are today, and their journey is truly just beginning. To learn more about Larry the Legend and Keeley Companies, check them out at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. As you all know, yeah, we do some podcasting around here with more than five and a half million downloads. We appreciate you for being part of this Live Inspired family. But part of our mission also is the work that takes place on stages, whether physically in the room or virtually through various platforms with organizations around the United States and around the world. It's a joy to partner with organizations. It's a blast to meet the individuals who are part of the room. And one of the other side benefits of all of this is meeting other presenters. I've shared the stage with some phenomenal individuals from around the world, including today's guest. His name is David Horsehugger. David is a global trust expert. And you may be asking yourself, well, global trust expert, what does this have to do with me? And what I would say to you is everything. Without trust, whether that's trust in your family, trust in your spiritual journey, trust in your government, trust in your currency, trust in your organization, trust in life. Without trust, everything else fades away. So what is the value of trust? How do we ensure that we keep it and what happens when it begins to fade? How do we rebuild trust? That's going to be the conversation that I have today with my friend. You're going to love this. A little bit about David before I bring him on. He is the best-selling author of The Trust Edge. It's a best-selling book. It's worthy of the read. Trust me. He is the CEO of the Trust Edge Leadership Institute. He has shared the stage, yeah, with John O'Leary, but he's also presented in front of some pretty cool organizations like FedEx and Toyota, the New York Yankees, go Yankees, the Department of Homeland Security, among many, many, many others. Today, he's going to present with me in front of you. You're going to love this conversation. So my encouragement, grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. Get ready to talk about trust. Get ready to understand the profound effect of trust in your life. And for those of us who trust has been broken, I get it. Get ready to rebuild that trust. It's going to happen today. So my friends, without further ado, let me bring him on. My friend and soon to be yours, his name is David Horsehugger. David, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you so much, John. It's a treat to be on with you and your amazing audience. Uh, what a gift. Well, we, we use that word friend frequently for folks that we, we may have met for the very first time a moment ago. You and I have a bit more of a history, but for those who do not know that history, know what you do for a living or the books that you write or what you speak on, if you were to introduce yourself, how would you introduce yourself? 
Hi, my name is David Horsager. I'm the dad of four kids, husband of one wife. I, I love family, I love friendships, and I really love what I do for work. I run Trust Edge Leadership Institute. Our mission is developing trusted leaders and organizations around the world. We have the opportunity to work with everything from uh, pro sports teams to global governments on this issue of developing trust, everything from corruption issues to massive corporate clients. I, I love this work. It started with you know my grad work in many ways. Maybe it started from growing up on a farm in northern Minnesota under great leadership, but we certify folks in driving this throughout their organization, and we also measure it. I created the Enterprise Trust Index and some other tools years ago with 30 years of Accenture data and my grad work and all this. I love the work that you do, and I do believe it is critical not only to what we do in governments and corporations, but within families and in yeah. our own personal walk. So we're going to go back before your work, back before your, your experience at universities, all the way to childhood. You are a New Year's baby. I think you were born January 1, 1973, man. We're back in the train all the way up. Oh, my goodness. So you, you mentioned in the introduction this growing up on the farm. And John, maybe that's where I learned a little bit about the power of character and trust. Talk about the power of your mother and father and influencing you as a young sure. boy. Well, you know, faith, family, friendships, those are molders, and, and certainly all three of those are really important in my life. You know, I was the youngest of six kids. We had years on the farm when we were, we were upside down and backwards, for sure. We grew up in one of the poorest counties in Minnesota, uh, learned to work hard, but I, I really learned a lot from from their leadership. I was just there for this last weekend with mom and dad. Dad's uh, 92 and a half years old, still runs the farm, mom and dad do. So pretty fun to be with them. They're fit as can be. And it's just an amazing example in many ways. But the character I saw and the example I saw, that, that really molded me. I, I wondered why do people love working for my mom and dad? It wasn't because they were the best farmers in the world, but it was how they did it how they treated people, how they lived. I even tell stories, you know, today in, 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 the, um, in, in my speeches about growing up under them on the farm and how that's influenced my leadership, the way we do things here. But those growing up years, you know, you learned hard work. We learned faithfulness. We learned the value of people. We learned the value of high character doing the right things, but not just the right things, doing them the right way. I can give you stories upon stories about that kind of thing. Frequently, we take for granted the oxygen in the room and the sunlight beaming down on our faces and the parents that help elevate and raise us. When did you recognize my mom and dad are, are special? They are remarkable human beings. You know, I know, remember those teenage years wishing they didn't have the, the rules that some of my friends had, but I think it wasn't long after. I always felt like there was something special about family, for sure. But I think in college, I started to become very grateful. Once I saw a bigger world, what was out there, the gifts I've been given around discipline, character, example, connectedness with others. I think I, I started to be more and more grateful, certainly by the time I hit college. So before college, you had a sixth birthday. And I understand that, you know, not only are you an NSA Hall of Famer, a speaker's Hall of Famer, at age six, you gave your first speech. I got asked to do several things early on. My dad was good at kicking us out, pushing us, doing things. And so I think uh, our church had some opportunity. Now, by the way, on the speaking front, so some of those pushes really helped. I remember being nervous and sick to my stomach speaking several times, but later I won you know, a speech contest of about 2,000 students that landed me on a free trip to, to Israel from a, actually a, a secular youth development organization that um, was, this one trip was sponsored by 
the Anti-Defamation League, uh, Jewish Community Relations Council on Anti-Defamation League. They want to build relationships um, U.S. to Israel. And I got to go on this amazing trip to stay with the Prime Minister's press secretary and so forth. But I, I don't think a lot of those things would have happened at 18 and 19 years old or even what I'm doing today without some of those pushes early on, whether it's uh, bailing hay before you're ready or, or standing up and giving a speech. Talk about college. You went to Israel. I think you were 17 or 18 when you went. You eventually came back. You graduated high school. Go on to university. What, what was the focus in college? My focus, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you the greatest things I got out of college. And I tell this to my kids all the time. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Even just last year, I had a new epiphany about this where people say, it's all about relationships. And it's like, you can say that, but it really is. Even when I started my first business in 1999 with $1.40 to my name, some of my first bookings or people or mentors I went to were those relationships from college, you know, a decade earlier. My two key keys. One, my wife was a great relationship <laughs> from college. I'll give you three of them. Two mentors I, I built, and I was very active. I don't know if this was the way my dad was or what, but I was very active in getting to know my professors. So I went and met with them after. I went and met with the, I remember the president of the university said he hadn't met with a student other than me for however long. And I just, I don't, I don't know why I, you know, knocked on his door, called his assistant, said I, you know, gave him a reason to meet. I don't know why it was, but those relationships, now I sit on the board of trustees of that university, interestingly enough, but um, that was a key. The third key is something very few people have. Many people have friendships. I went away from that college time, university time, with a group of four friends that were not just friends, they were accountability partners for life. And so we would meet my junior year every Thursday night, 10 to midnight, whether we had exams the next day or not. And we would talk about how are you doing in life? Like it wasn't, it wasn't this things college students do, I don't think it was how, how are you, doing well, how are you treating your girlfriend? How are you, you know, these, these kind of accountability type things. And we kept meeting and now what this next weekend is our, we call it our shindig or our annual retreat. Usually it's around four days. Each of us goes through a series of often of about uh, three hours of sharing through about 50 questions. How are, you, how are you doing? We each lead pretty significant organizations these days, each of the four of us. Some amazing things have happened personally and professionally because of that accountability group those four guys that have helped me be a better husband a better leader a better in, in a host of other ways so that's probably if i think of one of the keys life-changing pieces that came out of university it was those four guys that were at not just at each other's parents funerals we are with each other one of those guys i talk to about every other day this topic of camaraderie and, and fellowship and brotherhood or sisterhood that's where I think I want to talk next, because although a lot of us have a deep network, we got a lot of friends. Just look yeah. at our Facebook stream. We got friends all over the place. Very few of us have the kind of friends who we could turn to and speak truth to and cry with and get true feedback from. So the question for you, my friend, is how do you deepen a social relationship? Because many of our listeners are in high school and college, mm -hmm. and many of them are past the point of retirement. All of them, I think, are seeking deeper relationships. How do you begin to deepen that relationship with, with friends and make them lifelong companions? Well, it takes in being intentional, I'll tell you that. And it, it really helped in our group of four, we were all willing, but it took a guy, 
one guy named Scott that was actually more intentional about the questions we asked about what we could get out of this. He really led the way on vulnerability, on openness. One piece is it takes being intentional. I do an exercise often with a senior leadership teams that many people say is the best thing they've ever been through. And we call it the trust shield. Basically, most of the time, I don't do the big, deep, long sharing that we sometimes do. They each share for three minutes, but they're pushed a little bit and many of them say they knew each other better after those three minutes than working together for 10 or 20 years because they were a little intentional about just what they share, not in a weird way, not in some psychological manipulation way, like you have to share everything that happened in your life, but just a little push. And what do we know, even from the newest study, we put out one of the biggest studies on trust and leadership every year, 92% of people would trust their senior leader more if they're more transparent about their mistakes. Mm. Not just transparent about how cool they are, how they won this award and how great they are. That's not transparent. That's not what I'm talking about. Transparent about their mistakes. This willingness to be a little vulnerable. I and mean, the thing that happens in years of healthy accountability and healthy vulnerability is you can get in each other's grill about things and say, you better wake up to this year. You're going to lose here. You're going to lose this relationship. You're going to lose your business. You're gonna, you're, you, you could do better here. Uh, but also encouragement along the way when it's tough. And very few people I've found in the world get that. But, you know, you see leaders that say, I'm le it's alone at the top. Well, I think people are doing it wrong if they're doing it alone, right? We need others. So when you, I think you asked the question, what would I say? Being intentional. Yes. I would say consistency because we lose something without consistency. The guy I talk to every day, if I have to start every time with, well, so this is where I am now on this one. No, we have to know each other, right? We have to know each other. It also takes a care beyond yourself. If I believe you have intent beyond yourself, I will listen to you. We, we often want to hold people accountable when we kind of don't have a right to or we're not invited in and that just doesn't tend to work. Those guys, they can get in my grill. They can tell me. What they can they can hold me accountable because I know they actually do really care. So you mentioned there were three, including a diploma and a little bit of debt perhaps that you got from the university. <laughs> you also found a beautiful wife and you left Minnesota and you took her down south. I'm I'm a Missouri guy. You okay. the south in that man. I think yeah, you went sure Paris in Arkansas. What was the first job? I, I was on staff out of college. I, I really loved even development of people back then. And I I saw something that happened to me when I got to away at camps. In fact, I've worked, by that time, I'd worked at about seven different youth camps. Like every summer I would try somewhere else. So everything from kind of faith ones to sports ones to leadership ones that were secular to all these different ones, inner city urban ones. The biggest Christian sports camp in the country is called Canicut Camps. It's down in Missouri, Branson, Missouri. I started there and I wanted to, I'd heard about their leadership development program. I heard about the way they don't let a counselor face to face in the same room with a kid until they've had at least 10 full days of training. That's not common. A lot of times you'll get camp that it's like, oh, we just need the volunteers we can get. And they're like, okay, go do your best and whatever. I mean, you get there, they're trained and developed before they get to be a counselor. The reason I moved back to Arkansas was not to be on staff. And then I became uh, the area director of what they called K-Life. It's kids life. It's uh, youth and family development. And so, we, you know, college students, um, that was my sweet spot is people that were like at this kind of tipping point of their life where 
they're, they're, they're going to go this way or that. And I really mentored a lot of them to lead others. So they would lead junior hires, senior hires, and a host of other things. So we moved back. We moved to Arkansas. I had the best board I've ever had. I, I fondly, and they know jokingly, I say, from, from Minnesotan, like I moved to another country, uh, Arkansas. But actually, I have just deep gratitude to the people I got to work with. And, and they're still dear, dear friends. So that was my first role was Arkansas. And in fact, by the way, I moved down there. Lisa and I met in Mexico. We were, you know, building homes for people that didn't have them out in the, in the slums of uh, Mexico on a spring break trip from our university. And so I got to know her and then I graduated like a month and a half later. And so I was headed down to Missouri and Arkansas. She had two more years of college. So imagine this, we wrote 500 letters back and forth, letters back when you don't have, we didn't have email. We, still have... we have John Adams on the podcast <laughs> with us today. Yeah. So we wrote all these letters and we got to know each other well. And of course, uh, fell in love along the way. It didn't take long for me. You know, then came back, got married, and she, uh, we, we, we lived down there a few more years. And then we started our first uh, company back in 1999. And it was an overnight success. I want to talk about that oh. decade-long overnight success of this business starting. You literally started at the ground floor and maybe even below the ground floor. Talk about, is it? Clara Miller, Claire. How do you know these things? You're more. You, and you, I love you. you. Are, I, I'm, I'm doing the recap. You, you are something else. You know more than I know. You're right. 86 year old Clara Miller. So we <laughs> move back to Minnesota, and one thing we are willing to do is we are willing to sacrifice for the future. So basically, we move back to Minnesota. We threw everything we had into this, and we had uh, by that October we had a dollar forty to our name, eighty cents in the home account, sixty cents in the business account, not another penny. Not another pet that was after paying our urgent bills i felt like you know we need to keep our expenses low we looked at apartments to live in they were like 600 a month no chance i can't do that so we searched some more i lived in my brother we lived in my brother's basement for a little bit till we could find a place and sure enough clara miller uh 86 years old said we could live in her basement for 350 dollars a month we'll take it we didn't know the basement we didn't see the basement until we did it, <laughs> that basement had no bathroom no yes. kitchen no windows we didn't know it was illegal to live in a windowless basement until the day we moved out two years later but you know what it came with black mold on the walls so that was good but we lived there kind of this cement block whatever we would walk two or three flights up to her bathroom if we needed to go to the bathroom two flights up to her kitchen we mm -hmm. could use that three flights up to her bathroom use that and uh whether it was in the middle of the night or not and that was that was that's how we lived for two years and we were focused we were focused on what we were building a couple things around that number one is i've heard it said frequently and i think rightly when you have little you're grateful for everything and in those early days you had so little but i also understand you had a very grateful heart and the second piece i wanted to ask around i read or researched somewhere that you and your wife used to take wednesdays one day a week to pray together and fast together would, would you talk about why yeah. you did that and what the benefit of that was as a young couple? Because marriage is so hard and living in a basement is so hard and there's no natural light coming in and there's mold no. on the walls and you stuck through it. So I don't know how you find all this stuff publicly, but it's the truth and I'm, I'm open about it. So we prayed every day together on our knees, but on one day a week, we just felt like we needed, we felt called to it. And we one day a week for the first year, we didn't eat, we fasted for uh 24 hours so that was wednesdays for us we we were focused on that and and praying and fasting and working 
And by the way, we worked a thousand percent too. So we, 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 we pray and work and fast and pray and work. And I remember making calls from that basement just with a phone, you know, just call, 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 no rejection, 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 rejection. <laughs> and and uh, I remember uh, we had this, you know, I was, I was kind of had this training I'd built. Basically, I built that first leadership development training in that organization in Arkansas, and that's some of what I was using. And I had we had some miracles later where I got seen by the commanding officer of the US Coast Guard Academy and ended up speaking there and some other things. But basically, yeah, that's that's where we started. And it was just working every day. What could we do today? What to move the needle? What could we do tomorrow? I remember this one time we put all the money we finally had, we'd like got a booking or two, and so we put it into these videotapes of what we were trying to do. We had enough, we could afford we 70 of them, 70 packages, you know, that we shipped out. We shipped, I said, well, it won't do us any good to have them here. I got to get this out. And we believed in it, you know, what we were doing. And uh, we shipped them out and spent all this money. And we almost got one booking from it. The, the misery of being a young speaker. I am familiar with these, these painful origin <sighs> stories. And yet you got enough bookings from other work that had led to some exciting opportunities. Yeah. You had a a wild tour through Japan. Talk about that. That was a miracle story too, because we met the, the, the person who produced that was from Branson, Missouri, which is kind of where I was. So when I say Arkansas, you know, Harrison, Arkansas, and Branson, Missouri, they're right over from each other. And one was where I was for the years I was leading my part of the organization. The other part is where all the, the, the camps are, which when people think about camps, I mean, this is big, this is thousands of counselors. So you're talking about loads of, of kids in different, but they all felt like their own experience. So you had a couple different lakes that they're all, all these things happening. If you want to get into side notes. So by the way, even though I was, you know, really the speaking was the main thing. Even back then I was asked to speak more at these events. I actually was mentored by one of the best magical illusion teachers oh, right. in the world. And so think of magic tricks. So I was using magic way back, you know, 30 years ago, I was using it to kind of when I was speaking at youth events to kind of make an analogy for what is. So like I would do a trick, rip up a newspaper and restore it and talk about ripping people down and building them up. Or I would show an illusion, blow someone away. And then actually this isn't conventional in the magic world, I know, but teach how it was done just to show people how easy it is to be deceived, how mm. easy it is to be tricked. You know, the point was always the the point, not the, not the, the but, but I was never a red cummerbund kind of whatever, but I would I would go out in jeans and a t-shirt to, to youth and kind of blow them away and then give a give a message. But because Lisa and I, you know, we're we're mentored and it turns out we're kind of pretty good at this thing. They produced us and we did shows all over Japan. It was an amazing experience. When I think of what we got paid for how much work we did, it wouldn't you know, be a lot. On the other hand, the alternative was basically we were getting paid nothing. So <laughs> we, get, we got something out of that time and it was super valuable, but the experience was amazing. The experience with your wife, with your partner, Lisa. And one thing that always draws me to you is the reality of that you get feel anxiety before every presentation. A guy who's been doing this for two and a half decades feels anxiety every time out. 
which is why some wisdom your wife whispered yes. your way is, is so beautiful. Would you share what your wife used to say to you yep. before you took the stage? And by the way, she still does it. And now, yeah, I don't get nervous like that. And it, it's different in, in some ways for sure. But back then when I was speaking, I would be backstage and I would be sick. There maybe a thousand people behind, on the other side of the curtain and oh, whatever, all this stuff. And, and she would pause, she would look at me and probably hold my shoulders even. She said, David, don't think about yourself and don't think about research. Don't think about what you're gonna say. Just love them. They can tell when you love them. And this began a habit of me really, I think not certainly imperfectly, but loving those people, individuals in every audience and uh, really loving them, thinking about them, thinking about what they need. Even when I, there's a lot of ways I could go here, but in the in people that get the privilege of the platform, I see many people that abuse it for themselves. They're there to get therapy or whatever for themselves. I feel like if I'm gonna have the privilege of this platform, what am I there to give them? What does this mean to them? In these days, what does this trust research mean to them? How can this help their company triple sales or lower attrition or gain retention? But what it's about them, it's about their needs, what they want, building trust so that they get what they need. By the way, it still happens. So I remember I'm getting driven into kind of this lockdown environment in the biggest mutual uh, mutual fund company in the world and i'm like i'm gonna go meet with the top 10 people in this you know ivory tower and all you gotta do is just go build trust with them you know it's like they've got these issues then lisa texts me remember just love them as i'm going into this you know environment I remember one time we were in a, a country in East Africa and there's machine guns all around. They got the, I'm going to go up and meet the president, the vice president, and then I'm going to speak to their country. There's 3,000 people live, parliament and all this. I'm the speaker to their country. I'm talking about trust and they're having challenges. And, you know, it's a different environment than you and I would have, at least with the challenges of the world there. And Lisa was with me on that trip and she just squeezes my hand as we're sitting next to the Senate majority leader and so forth. And miles before I go, just love them. And I got up and I felt like it gave me this perspective, just love them. And it turns out people can tell when you love them. This works one-on-one, -on -one. this works in an organization. We now have this mantra in our organization, just love them. We have a big event every year, Trusted Leader Summit. And in the morning before the, every morning we talk about like, I, I go over this thing, we're here to love them. And people say, this would be a good example. This board member, she's been at all these events, DC, New York, she said, uh, she's, we met at National Association of Corporate Directors. She said, I've been to all these hotshot, big, high caliber events. When I come to your events, two things. I've never felt like I've been around more genuinely cool leaders. That's cool. And number two, I've never felt more loved. Mm. Like this is happening. It's happening without us telling her, right? And there's several ways we do it. Everything from, you know, at the table, there's a text, you can text for a need right then, anytime. Hundreds of people, they can text my, one of our, uh, an assistant or someone from our team. So if someone says, oh man, the GW, they give Pepsi and I like Diet Coke, there'll be a Diet Coke on there. We, we've learned that one in two minutes. We've got a whole ice chest full of Diet Coke. You love them and they know it, whether it's in Africa, in your family, in the boardroom, in a stadium. That they know, people know when Absolutely. they feel loved. You've, you've talked and written extensively that the issue ultimately is trust or lack thereof. Why do you say that? I believe it always is a trust issue. And this came from an epiphany I had, not a, not any, actually it wasn't any big spiritual thing. It was just like, I, this is 
kind of right after that time in the basement. We maybe had our own little place by then, but I had been doing some of this work I had created around leadership and so forth. And I started thinking, I was at this conference, probably the nicest place I'd ever stayed till that point, Lowe's Resort in Sedona or somewhere in Arizona that I was at. I remember Lisa and I were together. We didn't have kids yet. We're out on the deck and I'm thinking about this problem they were talking about they were having. I was like, that's not a leadership problem. It seems like they don't trust the leader. And I started thinking about their sales issues. It's not a sales issue. It seems like they don't trust the guy. That, that's why they're not buying. And, and I started, it was just intuitive at the time. This led to my grad work and this affirmed all of this. And now we you know, put out one of the biggest studies every year on this topic. But the, here's what I would say in simple terms. I believe the research backs it up, but I believe I hope without a shred of ego, but a whole lot of research and now work across six continents, at the core it is always a trust issue. So in a simple uh, way of thinking about, think about this, is that really a leadership issue? No. The reason you're following the leader or not, unless it's a dictator with a gun, which isn't really a leader, is always a trust issue. I don't trust them. Sales, why am I not buying? I don't trust either the product or the person. It's always a trust issue. Marketing, mm. what, how do I amplify this message? There's only one way you have to increase trust in the message. Diversity, equity, inclusion. How do we deal with this diversity issue? The biggest Harvard study shows diversity on its own tends to pit people against each other of almost any kind. And yet, if we increase trust, we can get enormous benefits out of diversity, equity, inclusion, and a host of other things. What about learning in a classroom? There's only one way we now know to increase learning in a classroom. You have to increase trust in the content, the teacher, or the psychological safety or trust of the room. At the core, I can go on and innovation goes up when trust goes up because then people will share ideas. When they see trust is the core issue, they solve the real problem. And so th this first part is this case for trust where I show the bottom line impact of, of trust. And I believe a lack of trust is the biggest cost of a company. Of course, the second part is how do you build it? I believe it's never a, a engagement issue. You only get more engagement when you increase trust. It's not a net promoter score issue or referral issue. The research shows you have to increase trust. Then you get higher NPS. It's never a communication issue even. Oh, it's communication. It's got to be communication. No, it's not. It's the type. Communication's happening all the time. The clear, as if I go through the pillars of trust, clear communication is trusted. Ambiguous communication is not trusted. High character communication is trusted. Low character communication is not consistent. Isn't it? And so we, if we go through it, we actually get what we're talking about. So I believe now uh, doesn't mean we don't have to contextualize this work if we're dealing in Latin America or Africa or here, or if we're dealing with police issues or pro sports teams issues or company issues, but it always comes back to trust is the core issue and there is a way to build it. Well, there's also not only a way to build it, there's a profound need to build it. Part of no your doubt. research speaks to the fact of where we are today compared to where we were just a generation ago. Would you talk about government? And then ultimately, I want to get into the families because I think that's where most of our listeners are affected most by trust or lack thereof. But government-wise, we used to apparently in this country and in others trust our government. Is that true? And what's changed? There's absolutely truth to that. And I can speak some globally, but let me stay with in my lane of I'm in the U.S. Uh, here for those that are listening today. We've seen a massive change in trust, especially, uh, well, let's just take institutional trust. So you think back hundreds and hundreds of years, trust used to be local. So there's basically two reasons I trust someone or not, right? First, I don't know you, so I don't, tr I, I trust you or not. And the second is I do know you, so I don't tr trust you, right? If I know you, okay, I can, I can see that, but that person over the hill, I don't know, so I don't trust them. But then trust became institutionalized by certain frameworks. And institutions give frameworks of being, ways of being. They give, they form a culture, an organization. So 
there's institutional trust. Institutions help trust go up. In the US, it certainly helped massively groups of people trust each other because they could trust certain institutions. And, and of course, uh, we had a major problem. In, after Watergate in the 60s, about that time frame, right before it, excuse me, about 80% of Americans trusted our government basically to do what was right uh, and selfless, basically what was best for all. That's basically. Um, there's some ways we could look at that deeper with the civil rights and some other things, but basically there was a lot of trust. Now, uh, last big study I saw was uh, instead of 80%, six to 7%. I believe this last year went down to about tied with media, which is something like 2%. Terrible. Media trust, institutional media trust and institutional government trust are down steeply, but so is every institution. Media started to go down, I think, with some of the changes, 87 and 96, some of the legal things where we took regulation completely out. By the way, I'm not big on regulation, but certain types of regulation certainly increase trust. Like we need rules, we need laws. We need, if, if everybody goes through a stop line, they can do it whenever they, you know, we, we trust each other because, you know, oh yeah, you're gonna stop so I can go, it, it, it increases efficiency, right? About the same number of people in America say they believe in God as did about 80 years ago. But any way of measuring that, like giving to a place of worship, attending a place of worship, that's down steeply. They might say they trust God, but not the institution. Schools. When I grew up, interestingly, homeschooling was weird. Now it's not because people, people don't trust as much the institution of education. So the homeschooling and charter schooling, a lot of other things come up. So first of all, institutional, it's same with food. Like I grew up in agriculture, right? My, my dad still raises plants, be, beans or this kind of thing. But now the institution of big agriculture, like food, like beans, I, they want to know those beans were grown outside the restaurant. They were sung to and petted and picked with white gloves and they came right in and they were, you know, I mean, it's like, that's the deal. It's, it, they don't trust the institution. So institutional trust down steeply. So if I respond to just our government, there's a lot I could say, but a few top things to think about. Number one, their, their relational connectivity of senators and representatives is down enormously because you know, 100 years ago, a Republican and Democrat from California would duke it out on the floor and then they'd go have a drink or they would ride the train back to California together from DC. Doesn't happen anymore. They never see each other hardly off the floor, off the battlefield. So they don't have this relationship. They don't see each other as much as human beyond that time. And now, your expectation is you go in, you do your job, and then you start fundraising. So there isn't this relational time across. There's a host of other reasons. There's a lot of incentives going away from building trust. So we even see it where you're stripped of committee assignment if you work with someone across the aisle. That's a big challenge over the last 10 years that's been magnified, both sides have done it. And by the way, news and politics go together. 150 years ago, we used to have our news as a country. Now you have your news, I have my news, you have whatever news you want to get, you can have. And we're very formed by that. That's a big problem. We're also, also news stations are incentivized away from truth. Ultimately, the only way to take the next right step forward is to own our part of it. Absolutely. You know, it's so easy to, to criticize Trump or Clinton or Biden or the Democrats or the Republicans yep. or Fox yep. or MSNBC or that party over yep. there. And yet let's look in the mirror. And so I, I think it, it plugs perfectly into your most recent book. It's called The Trusted Leader. You lay out for us eight pillars that drive results. Uh, clearly, in the time we have, I'm not going to have you unpack all eight of them. 
but walk us through a couple, and I know it's hard. You, you have four children, I believe, so do I. Yeah. Hard yeah. to pick your favorite kid or kids, yeah. but give us, give us the starting point. Where should we begin as we pour a new foundation for trust going forward? Well, they are all critical, and that's the problem with the research, is that they're even kind of relatively co-equal from the research. You need all eight of these to, in essence, be a trusted leader or gain this advantage we call the trust edge. So it's worth just noting, you, you wanna think about all of them, but there there might be you know certain ones to start with or end with. So if I was gonna pick a couple to think about in this short time together, an easy place to start is clarity. People trust the clear and they mistrust or distrust the ambiguous or the overly complex. And it is incredibly difficult to be clear today. People think they're clear when they're not. Branding companies, marketing companies, they think they're clear when they're not. Clarity wins. You could think of a leader might say they're clear about the vision and they're not clear. Clarity of expectations can really help employees gain, gain buy-in or the commitment pillar. A salesperson might be really clear about how cool they are and how long they've been in business and not clear about the benefits of that product to me. And because they're clear about the wrong thing, they're losing business. So clarity is a part of strategy. Clarity is a part of how we communicate. But clarity is one place and clarity wins. People trust the clear and they mistrust or distrust the ambiguous. I'm not saying it's easy to do, but there are several processes under that pillar that we could talk about. And I just want to remind our listeners, what we're talking about here is political and it's boardrooms and it's running Fortune 500 organizations and it's leading sales teams and hospitals and it's leading a dinner table conversation with clarity. And it's making sure we are clear with those that we are called to love forward, including the reflection in the mirror. So for those of us listening, myself included, just recognize this is a full picture of leadership, both professionally and personally recognizing there's no gap between. Let's just take that clarity pillar real quick and talk about two ideas or a few ideas you could do something about it at home. Since we're talking personal, I'll take one example of myself. I wasn't getting what I wanted from my team, by the way, in Arkansas in the, in, early on. And I quickly learned whose fault it was mine because I wasn't clear enough. So I started this little process. I, in my head, I call it ODC, not OCD, <laughs> ODC. So I started to give a really clear outcome of what I wanted. I gave a deadline of when I wanted it by. Many, many leaders don't wanna give a deadline because they think, oh, a deadline that'll create conflict when not giving one will ensure you have conflict. And C was some time for clarifying questions like, are we clear? Are you clear about what we're wanting here? And when I just did that little process, ODC, here's the outcome. I'm not gonna micromanage you. You're smarter than me on this, but this is the outcome unless you need help or coaching. Here's the deadline. Can we see this by next week? Can I see this part by then? I might not know the whole end of it, but here's the deadline and then leave some time for clarifiers so we're clear. Now, how does that work at home? ODC. I was not clear about what I meant by a clean uh, room with my daughters. So I said, how do I ODC this? I don't want to be an exacerbating dad. I don't, I don't want to be a, this mean, What I want to give them win. How can I make help them win? So I said, they don't have to have everything. They're, not, they're kids. Right. They don't have to be perfect. So what, what do I think would be clear? Two things. A bed made, basically, and that just means actually just the top put on it, almost like the sheets might even be scruffled underneath, right? But the kind of the blanket on top over it. And then I said, how about, they don't have to have the dresser clean. They don't have this, they don't have that. Let's just have no clothes on the floor, okay? So just to be clear, I cleaned it myself once. I showed them what that looked like. Here's the outcome I'm expecting, okay? Every Saturday morning before you do something else, deadline, this is what I'm saying. And that gave clarity. So here's how you just take that home. or. One of ours is values. You know, we talk about values as a leader. We talk about values, just, I talk about decision-making values. That's a whole 
another thing we can talk about how that's different than just having values. But the values you make decisions by, that's the reason to have values, so you can make decisions by them. That's how you get consistency. But we took this at home once. So just to get personal here, we came up with values for our home. We call them horse auger tenants. These are the tenants we want to live by. We, we hope that every 18-year-old horse auger will kind of reflect these. So one of them was, not very many words, it was simply be grateful. So we had these tenants, and we'd have them on the dining room table where we eat, and the kids knew them all by two years old, not by shoving it down their head, not by, I mean, I was flying in and out. It was like a couple minutes every time I was there, but they got them with some consistency. They knew what they were. They could say them, but could we live them? When my oldest daughter was five years old, I was starting to fly a lot more. We had a decent vehicle, but for snow, it was actually a Suburban. It was good for winter, but it was getting more miles on it. And I thought it's a good vehicle, but with me gone so much, Lisa home, we should get something else. So I was thinking, trade it, let's trade it in. And I remember the basement, right? <laughs> she doesn't remember the basement. Even at five years old, she doesn't remember that. She said something like, um, well, shouldn't we give it to that family, that, that person that needs a vehicle? One of our values is be generous. <laughs> we ended up giving that, that, that vehicle away. And that was because our kids held us to our values, partly because they were clear enough, but mostly because of who she became, right? And she helped us. Uh, hold us to it. Truly, what a, what a gift to be taught by your child, the values you hope they would learn themselves. Mm -hmm. And I still am learning. Now that they're college students, I'm learning even more because it turns out once they get to college, they know it all. <laughs> <laughs> Wait until they have kids. Uh, I, I'm going to race through the final eight uh, of these, these pillars that you know drive results professionally, in government, and personally. Clarity, you started with the first one is consistency, compassion, character, contribution, competency, connection, and commitment. Every one of these, when you really spend some time on them, every one of them is critical and created the mosaic of trust. That final one though, that, that idea of commitment. Uh, talk about the value of commitment. First of all, I want people to know they're not just kind of a list of C's. They each represent a research funnel. They're not just kind of this, oh, we came up with this motivational book. It's like these actually mean something and they're very important. Let me just say something real quick, David. One of my coworkers heard you at a speech and she heard that you were going to talk about the eight C's. And her take was, oh, great. You know, here, here it goes, trying to force things in. And by the end of it, she's like, oh, my gosh, no. Every one of those was the right word and it was there for the right reason. So it's not just a motivational diatribe. It's not just something to hang your, your shingle on. This, this is transformational pillars. So on commitment, what's our finding? Basic finding is we trust those that stay committed in the face of adversity. Commitment matters. So if I think of anybody who's left a legacy in my life or in history, and you know a lot about commitment, but you know whether it's my mom or dad or Mandela or Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Jesus or Joan of Arc, you'll find somebody that was trusted in some ways because they were committed to something beyond themselves, maybe to death. Mm. And that's the same with each of us. If I feel like, if you're leading an organization, I don't think, I think you're gonna jump at the first, I won't trust you. I don't believe you're, you're committed to me, to my team, to us. And so we trust those that stay committed in the face of adversity. If I believe you're gonna stick with me, I will tend to trust you. Um, there's a whole lot we could say about that and the anomaly of sports where, where people are fans to places where, in fact, the very players and coaches aren't committed at all to the organization. They could be wearing any other color. But basically, as in business and life, we trust those that stay committed, that are committed. I I'll say one other idea under this one that people can just take away right away. And there's a lot we could say about this pillar. But 
How do I be, rebuild trust once I've lost it? How do you rebuild it? There's only one way. And we have a 10-step process if you're a big company with an oil spill, and we have a you know, process if you're an individual leader that you might look at the whole process. But basically, whether you're a big company or an individual, it comes down to one thing, and it is not the apology. I'm not saying you shouldn't apologize to open the door of communication, but we hear it all, I'm sorry I'm late. No, you're not, you're late every time. The only way to rebuild trust is to make and keep a commitment. And, and a big reason people don't trust themselves is because they make commitments they do not keep. So don't make commitments so lightly. And those that have this muscle of making commitments and keeping them, they are high trust and, and gen, gen, tend to be, and they tend to build that. If you find someone who makes and doesn't keep commitments, they are often poisonous to teams because they don't believe anybody else is making or keeping commitments either. Man, I was about to ask you, for those of us wanting to grow in our trustworthiness, like some others should lean into us, what should we do? And I, I think you just answered it. Lay out a commitment, live into it. That's it. I will make one other comment here because it's interesting that you said the word trustworthiness, which I love. People often ask me, you know, David, how do you, you, you try to make the most trusted leaders and organizations of the world? If we hear about that. Is it better to be trusted or trustworthy? Well, of course, this is a big problem. Many people appear trusted. They can manipulate these pillars to look trusted without actually being worthy of it. What I'm actually going for at the end of the day, what I'm hoping the organizations, the governments, the companies I'm working with are going for actually is trustworthiness, being actually worthy of this trust. And that's when they build these pillars authentically. Then they actually become trustworthy. So really cool that you brought that out uh, yourself. Well, I probably learned it from doing recon and researching <laughs> your work. And so I'm, I'm just stealing shamelessly now from you. So my friend, we, we are going to move to the starting line, not the finish line. This is the starting line of our work together with what we call the Live Inspired Seven. These are seven quick fire questions and answers that will remind people not only who you are, but what's possible in their lives. So the first question is, what's the most influential book or meaningful book you've ever read? One. Wow. Well, certainly for me, the Bible is number one. Number two, the first book I wrote is Trust Edge. When you have to write it, I'm not promoting it here on the show. I'm just saying, you know, first of all, when that came out of my grad work, I had 500 and some pages. The, the, uh, the editor said, okay, bring that down. Not everyone wants to read all your research. And, you know, it took me about 25 edits later and finally became a bestseller and all that kind of stuff. But it was 367 pages by the end of it. But writing it, you know, you're writing and rewriting, you're thinking through with a meaning and impact. That was a, that certainly impacted me. And then for the fun of it all, we just did this with our team, but we read the book together, Excellence Wins by Horst Schulte, the founder of uh, Ritz Carlton. And he's been on my show and stuff. And, and uh, that's been a fun one recently that really affirms a lot of what we're talking about. But that's the order I'd give to it three different categories. Beautiful. And I don't view that second book you shared as self-promotional. I, I think it's yeah. transformational to put something into the universe that you spend. You know what it's like when you write. And, and, and for me, anybody could do it faster. I mean, I write, wrote my own stuff. So it isn't like ghostwriter stuff. It's like that shapes you. Well, it challenges you to question what you believe in why. And is it worthy of being shared? So uh, I'm glad you went through that process. It's benefited all of us. Question number two is, as a child growing up on a little bean farm, north, northern Minnesota, What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possess that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I think something that's happened to me is I've, I hear a lot of challenges. I feel the weight of the world on some of these. Like when I sit next, I really, I'm, I don't know if it's empathic or what, but when, when I sit with some of these, and I think as when you say, what did I enjoy as a kid? 
as much as we didn't have much sometimes, I was free, I was peaceful, I was joyful. I feel like something that's changed as you grow, especially in research is you become more, or I became more critical and a little more heavy, like, and sometimes even overly intentional. And so if I look at my journey, one of the things I would like to have more of, go back to as a kid, would just a little bit more of the lightness and not the, oh, we gotta build trust in the world or it's everything's, you know what I mean? Yeah, lightness and levity and freedom is the word yes. I'm gonna rely yeah. on, and freedom. If your home caught fire and Lisa and the children are out, the animals are all, all out and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one possession you come racing back outside with? I don't think I would go back in. I would go to my kids. Sit on the curb and watch the thing burn, huh? Be great. That's right. <laughs> awesome. If you could sit on a gorgeous Minnesota day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? There would be several, but I'd like to talk to Jesus. I'd like to talk to Ben Franklin, and I'd like to talk to my grandfather. I understand the first two. Talk okay. about the third. My granddaddy. I never never got to meet him, Grandpa Horsager. They came over from Norway. He died fairly young, and my dad is, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, it's a great human, great this. I mean, he's really an amazing, patient, visionary that is so incredible. I would have liked to see what was his dad like? Like, awesome. what, what helped this happen? What's the best advice that anyone, I know you've had a ton of mentors and influences in your life, but what's the best advice anyone has ever given you? I'm sure what I say was formed by it. And I'm not trying to put this back in advice I give all the time because it's been said many different ways, but it is little things done consistently that make the biggest difference. You know, Aristotle's credit with it. I found out it's actually somebody else that says we are, we repeatedly do. Uh, that was written on, I forget his name now, the first time. But that kind of idea of we are what we repeatedly do. So the, the, the habits form us, habits make us. So that would certainly be one thing. The other, the other that comes, jumps right to mind is input equals output. What you're putting in, you're getting out, right? But whether it's your body or your mind or your marriage. Well said. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? If you could whisper a little bit of advice into your ear at age 20, what would you say? I'll tell you, I was fortunate to get this, but I didn't even fully get it. And I still don't fully get it. And that is relationships really, I mean, relationships, 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 the relational capital can change everything and pouring into relationships. David Horsager, it has been said, my friend, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. This may be hard for you, but I'd like you to imagine summing yours up in one sentence. What will yours say? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's a really, really hard. Well, that meant but you said that was for great men. So um, I, don't, I don't have to maybe worry about that so much. I'll tell you something very crazy. I, I have it here. Somebody just sent it to me. And I, I guess I hope for this at least. Somebody sent me the picture of me in my high school annual, like the yearbook. I don't know if you had yearbooks. A teacher, like our advisor or whatever, put a quote by every person in the whole senior class. This is the quote with my senior picture. I don't, I don't know it's, if it's true or not, but I hope to live into it. And that is David Blaine Horsager. He's a gentleman on whom I built absolute trust. Macbeth. 
come on, man. I mean, that's, you know, now you go back 30 years or whatever, and that's what was in the 32 years. And I just thought, that's wild, the journey I've been on without ever even hadn't seen that, for or remembering that that's what's in my yearbook. So, uh, David, I, I want to thank you for modeling that trust, not only as a man and author and presenter and friend, spouse and father and son and all these other roles you've taken on, but for modeling them for a lifetime. It's, it's an impressive feat. It's one that we all can learn from. And I'm grateful you're sharing that with the rest of us. Huge thanks to you. Thank you so much. Appreciate you and all the work you do. Keep on. Friends, as you know, when I record these podcasts with friends, I'm always trying to look for one specific takeaway that I can incorporate into my life. And my one today is a quote that David shared about halfway through. The quote was this, the only way to rebuild trust is to make and then to keep a commitment. I love that, man. The only way to rebuild trust at work, in relationship with yourself is to make and then to keep a commitment. How does that show up for you in your life? Well, if you're looking to earn a little bit of trust with yourself and you made a commitment like this, hey, uh, I'm going to walk 10,000 steps a day, and you've been looking down at that little heart on your phone and averaging 3,000 or 2,000 or 8,000, well, maybe today the opportunity is for you to not only make that commitment, but to follow through on it to get those 10,000 steps in and to live back into the promise of that trust. If you committed to putting away the phone at the dinner time and you haven't been doing that well, maybe today when you go home, turn that thing off, keep it in your purse or your pocket and look into the eyes of those staring back at you. Engage in that conversation. Make valid again that commitment. Live in and then rebuild that trust with others and with yourself. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of earning and grasping and building that trust edge in your life. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, there's three ways to keep the journey going forward. Number one is if you haven't subscribed, why not? This is the way to ensure that these episodes keep flowing back into your life weekly. So subscribe if you haven't yet rated the show rate the show. That's a way that we can bring others in to ensure that they also might benefit from the Live Inspired experience. And the third way is this. There are other guests that we brought on, like Howard Bihar, former president of a little coffee company called Starbucks, or Stephen Covey, who is the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You might benefit from that one as well. Or you can just check out our summer playlist. We created a really cool playlist for all of you. I recognize this time of year, many of us spend times on vacations, on long walks, around the beach, maybe around a lake, maybe poolside, or driving there. If you're looking to benefit from some of the guests we've had on, including Grammy winner Lauren Daigle, she's awesome. Jackie Joyner, Curse of the Olympian, she's phenomenal among many, many, many others. You'll benefit from their life stories by checking out our Live Inspired podcast the summer playlist. You can learn more about that by going online to John O'Leary inspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, thank you for being part of our community. Thank you for living these messages through your life. And thank you for believing like I do that the foundation is firm. The headwind may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today's your day. What a gift. Live inspired.
With summer comes heat, and with heat comes hazard. As a loyal listener of the Live Inspired podcast, you all know by now that the Keeley Companies is the leader and single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. Keeley Companies also understands that there is nothing more important than returning their team members home safely to their family each and every day. As we begin heading into the hot summer months, their very own VP of Risk Management, Rob Miller, has three key tips to staying safe in the summer heat. Rest, water, and shade. If you're going to be outside this summer, don't forget the importance of rest and water and shade. By empowering Keelians to do their part and follow practical tips for safety, it's clear why Keely Companies is recognized for their world-class safety culture, Keely Safe. You can learn more about Keely Safe and the work of Keely Companies by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com.